Last week I preached on 1 Thessalonians 5, and we were finishing up the book of 1 Thessalonians that we've been going through over the summer and during this time. And I, and I shared with you that this, this book is so full of, the end chapter 5 is so full of concrete ways that you can follow Christ. It's not even funny. It talks about how we are to function in our relationship with the leadership of the church, how we are to function in relation to other people in the body of Christ, the people that are around you, and how we are to function in our relationship with God. And it's full of all these uh, very practical ways that we can connect with God. And last week, as we, as we finished that sermon, I told you I might come back to it because it was such a, such a heavy passage. And I hope that many of you uh, went back to it this past week and read over it again. Some of you I know did. But there was something that just felt unfinished. There was some angle that I really felt like I wanted to, to go back to. So whereas last week was very much verse by verse going through the original language, all that, today is going to be a little bit bigger ideas, bigger swath, looking at the text. Again, not the typical sermon, but, uh, but a way of looking at the text that might be helpful to us this morning. If you will, we'll be kind of putting a filter on to look at this passage through that will help us understand it and put it into practice. A lot, of, a lot of preaching, a lot of sermons, even books, can be very abstract, right? You're, you're left reading a book, you're left hearing a sermon saying, well, what do I actually do with that information that I agree with? I agree with the information, what do I do with it? But the problem is, if we have too many abstract concepts that are divorced from the reality of making concrete changes in our lives, it really hurts us. And if you look at the, the climate we're in in the United States and the world, you know, People believe a lot of things, but they don't really do things that are, that are constant with the things that they believe. So there's a, there's a separation from believing and doing. And it's, it's, it's existed from the beginning of time. We'll see it's in the Bible. It's addressed in the Bible. Uh, having knowledge and not doing anything with it, even believing truth and not doing anything with it, that's addressed in the Bible. But I think even more in our world today, People say they believe something and they don't actually do something with what they believe. So it becomes, it becomes almost useless in a way. The, the, the information, the belief becomes useless. It says in 1 Corinthians 8, 1 to 3, we know that, quote, we possess all knowledge, but knowledge puffs us up while love builds us up. Those who think they know something yet do not know, do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. There's that principle there that you can, you can know a lot and it can puff you up. But what's really important is being known, being known by God and loving his word uh, and obeying it, putting it into practice. So Paul writes, who, those who think they know something should take a step back and see how they are loving uh, because love builds up, knowledge puffs up. Knowledge can blow, having lots of knowledge without love that's commensurate to the knowledge you have can blow up your faith and blow up your witness and not, not be a good thing. The important thing in this passage is that it's not important knowing everything, but that God knows you. Knowledge without that context can actually keep you from knowing God. And there are plenty of people, both in the Bible that Jesus addresses and people in our world today that know much more about the Bible than I do, of course. That's not too hard, I guess. There's lots of, lots of knowledge out there. People that know the word backwards and forwards, but they don't put it into practice. And so it's a useless knowledge. It's even a dangerous knowledge to have knowledge without action. This is a really big emphasis of the book of James in the, in the scriptures. 
And looking at some of James this morning and uh, during the week, uh, going over it, I just saw what a valuable and, and central thing this idea of putting action with our faith is. In James 1, to 25, it says, Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Do not merely listen to the word and deceive yourself. Do what it says. Now, on one level, we see something in the Bible that, that's a command or something that, that we're told to do. We're supposed to put it into action. On another level, there's an action that's spurred on by any scripture that we read. There's got to be a change that happens in our lives, regardless of what, if it's command or if it's just regular scripture. But the encouragement here is that we are not to deceive ourselves by reading the word and not doing what it says, but we are to always join our knowledge to action to have a healthy soul to do well as a Christian. James 2.14, uh, going a little forward, James kind of fleshes this concept out. He says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith that has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself that is not accompanied by action is dead. Here's a much even broader application. If we don't put faith into action, you know, it atrophies us, it hurts us, and we can come to a point where we will actually see a need right in front of us, and we will outsource that to God or to other people as bystanders and say, be warm and well-fed and feel like we did our ministry to that person. You know, we've walked away from an action that we could have taken by our faith and thus strengthening our faith and loving someone uh, in Jesus' name. So this is a problem for James's audience, obviously, for Paul's audience. Knowledge without action. Um, faith without action. It puffs you up. It hurts you. It keeps you from knowing God. We have to always do something in response to the word. We have to always do something in response to the word. And there's no one who is standing over our shoulder and kind of uh, shaking us and saying, you need to figure this out. This is all of our responsibility to take what God says to us and do something with it. And when we do that, uh, we, we know and we experience Jesus. But think about some of the other things that, that we kind of have a heart. They're more abstract, but we don't really put into practice so much or, or know how to put into practice. Singing worship music is a classic thing. We talk about surrendering to God in worship music. And sometimes we, we have a strong idea of what we should be surrendering to God, but sometimes we're just singing the words. We don't even know what we're talking about. We're just saying, I surrender to you, Jesus. We don't know what we're talking about. Um, I think every time we step away from a worship set, from a sermon, we should be asking God, what is something that I can do to put into practice what I'm singing about, what I'm hearing, what I'm talking about, so that my faith can be a live faith, not a dead faith, so I can encounter Jesus and not miss Christ altogether. I think that when we leave church, we should have a concrete idea of how we can go forward to honor God, not just an abstract thought in our head about having done church. And uh, I think that all of us, myself included, 
are, are way too often okay with just sort of like a, a, a truth that's not coupled with action, uh, with abstractions that sound good, but in the end, they're meaningless because they make no difference in your life or the life of other people. So with this in mind, as, as we're coming back to 1 Thessalonians 5, I, I was praying about what God wanted to, to say through this, and I really felt that God led me to read through 1 Thessalonians 5 again with you in the context of another passage of Scripture from Acts 2, 42 to 47. Um, because all the, all the actions in 1 Thessalonians 5 have to relate to leaders, to each other, and to God, but they're divorced from the context that, that the author intends. We're not going to experience the growth and the good things the passage promises. So the passage I felt led to was Acts 2, 42 to 47. And this is about the early church and their witness and what they did when they first, uh, when Jesus first ascended to heaven and the church was exploding in the early, in the first century church. And this is how it describes the fellowship of believers. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I don't know, but does that touch your heart? Does that awaken a desire in you for something more than we know in our fellowship? For me, I can't help but feel touched with the desire to have what they had. Many people write books and do seminars and, and Christian teachers preach about going back to them being like the early church. This is something we want. We want to see it. But many times our experience seems to fall short. But when you hear this, doesn't it burn in your heart? Devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, prayer, having everything in common, taking care of needs every day, breaking bread in their homes and eating together. And then the part that makes every evangelist and every person that wants to share Jesus excited, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I think for us, we, we love that, that last piece where God adds to their number, the idea of God multiplying the church. But I think what God is saying to me in regard to 1 Thessalonians 5 and this passage is we cannot have that last part where God adds to the church without the part of this that's about frequency of fellowship. And if you look at this passage, this contains daily home meetings that people were experiencing and daily public meetings that people were experiencing together. Both structured times of worship, like this, and breaking bread in their homes. Probably many times, both in one day. And you don't have to worry, I'm not here to pile up a burden on you. So just turn that off. That's not what's going to happen here. But what I'm saying is, if we want to see the kind of power that the early church had in, in, in the people coming to Christ, we have to pay attention that in verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts like we are today. Every day they broke bread in their homes and ate together, praising God and enjoying the favor of the people. 
and it's and it, it is described in verse 42 as being devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to breaking bread and prayer. Devotion. Devotion. So when we say this phrase, I'm devoted to Jesus Christ, it sounds it's kind of an abstract idea. What does it really mean to be devoted in the way that these people were devoted? And I think that what it means is you spend time with that which you are devoted to. You spend time with that which you are devoted to. And these people were devoted to the body of Christ, to being together. And in that fellowship, far from a bunch of individuals coming together, it was a fellowship. It was a church. It was a body of Jesus. And these people encountered the presence and power of Jesus, watched miracles happen, and enjoyed fellowship and favor with all the people as God built the church. But they were devoted to Jesus Christ. It wasn't abstract. That meant devoted to one another. That's what that meant. Devoted to one another. Meeting together. Devoted to one another. You spend time with the things you're devoted to. Today's my wife's birthday. So happy birthday, Jackie. She's at home with the kids. But, I, but if I was to say I'm devoted to my wife but never spend time with her, that would be pretty hollow, wouldn't it? I were to say, I really like the idea, the idea of being devoted to my wife. I'm devoted to you, Jackie. I love you. I'm devoted to you. But I never spent time with her. It would just be words. It would be a, word, it would be, it'd be a phrase that I felt really good about. Like, you know, I'm, I'm a devoted person. I, I tell her I'm devoted to her. I'm always talking about it. But if I'm not actually spending time with her, my devotion is nothing. And I've actually tripped myself into feeling good about being devoted while at the same time not being devoted at all. And I think that that's easy to miss out on this devotion the early church had, to meet together frequently, to form as the body of Christ, to meet publicly, to meet privately in their homes, and enjoy, enjoy the favor of all the people as God built the church. You spend time with that which you are to be devoted to. And this is not devotion to an idea or a vision from me or the elders or anyone else in the church. It's devotion to the person of Jesus Christ, where you choose to physically position your body, your physical body, with other people in the body of Christ more regularly to experience the power and the presence of God. We express our devotion to Jesus Christ not by affirming our beliefs about God and saying things that sound good about God, but by placing our physical bodies our physical bodies, which God has given us, into regular proximity with other believers in order to form and experience the body of Christ. That's how we express our devotion to God, time. You spend time with that which you are devoted to. It might, it might seem a little bit, uh, I think spending time with the Lord is wonderful. I, I talked about it last week. But in our culture, it's become such an individual exercise. Spending time with the Lord in prayer, spending time with the Lord in personal Bible study, waking up early to meet with the Lord. Those are good things. Those are good things. But this is not the kind of devotion that I think the early church would have pointed to and said, that's all, that, that's all there is to it, that you meet with God every day. The devotion they were talking about was being devoted to one another, experiencing the body of Christ and the kingdom through that devotion. Everything flowing from that place. As I said, a strange sermon today. But these are the ideas that I think God wants to point out as we read through 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 28 again, because this is not a list of laws. This is not a to-do list. It's meant to fill you with all these different anxieties of, oh, am I doing this? Am I treating this? Am I doing this right? This is meant to be read in the context of a people who are devoted to being together 
And so all these issues that arise from First Thessalonians 5 are assuming that you are meeting together more than for an hour and a half on Sunday mornings. That's the assumption. So as I read this passage, listen to this a little bit differently from last week. I'm going to add Acts 2.42 to the beginning of each line here. As you devote yourselves both to formal and informal or spontaneous fellowship with other believers by joining together on a regular basis, I want to ask you this, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Because you're spending time with the body of Christ, notice those people that are taking leadership among you and lift them up, bless them, acknowledge them. The reason you can see who those people are is because you're actually meeting with them. It's not talking about your senior pastor, necessarily. It's talking about leadership within the body of Christ. As you devote yourselves both to formal and informal or spontaneous fellowship with other believers, as you, as you are doing this, live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, to warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Be sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. On a Sunday morning for an hour and a half, you can tolerate people that you have a hard time with. This passage is talking about people that are meeting daily on a really regular basis in community, and all these issues are coming up. And you cannot hold your temper, and you cannot grow in character with an hour and a half of being around someone that you don't necessarily get along with. But you can do that when you are in regular devoted fellowship with the body of Christ. In the midst of this close-knit fellowship of believers, a group of 10, a group of 15, a group of, of six, two families, um, whatever it might be, in that context, live in peace with each other and warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone, and make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, always strive to do what is good for each other, and for everyone else. How would you know who is idle and disruptive unless you were doing life with them on a regular basis? You wouldn't. This pastor assumes this frequency of fellowship with the body of Christ. Verse 16, as you devote yourself both formally and informally to, to spontaneous fellowship with other believers and planned events, rejoice together. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. As you gather... This is how you are to relate to God together, not just as an individual, but as a group. Rejoice. Pray. Give thanks in all circumstances. You know, we have a lot of individual circumstances in our life that we can spend plenty of time praying through and walking through. But when you are in a small group of believers who are devoted to one another and meet with each other on a very regular basis, there's plenty of opportunity for those who are beaten down by life to be lifted up by the rest of the body. There's plenty of opportunity to pray continually for those who can't, can't, can't bring themselves to pray for themselves. There's plenty of opportunity to help someone give thanks in the midst of a very challenging circumstance in their life. And this is God's will for us, that we would be in this context of, of meeting together, that we'd be lifting each other up and relating to God together and helping people who are weak and struggling and having a hard time in their life or going through a very specific situation by bringing them to God, bringing them before God as a priest unto God, helping them to rejoice, to pray, to give thanks. And you know what? If you're in a community like this, someday it's going to be you that's in that seat. You're going to be the person 
whose life gets disrupted and your whole routine gets thrown off because something something happens and you're just thrown for a loop. You can't pray. You can't see God in it. You're going to be that person. Your group, your, your tribe can help you to rejoice, to pray, give thanks in a way that you couldn't pull yourself up to do on your own. Verse 19, as you devote yourself to both formal and informal even spontaneous fellowship with other believers. As you, as you spend this regular time together, do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. But test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. I really think the opportunity for, for prophetic words from God is, is, you know, we always talk about, we always think about larger church settings and someone gets a word and they come forward and they share the word. But I think it's much more normal, normative, to be in a house fellowship with people that you meet with on a regular basis, you're devoted to them, and you and someone someone is praying in love for someone else, and they get a word for that person, and they share it with a group, and then the group tests it. The group knows each other, they test it. Zero risk. Zero risk of a flopping and falling on their faces because in that gracious environment we can practice these things, lift each other up in love. And maybe, and certainly, I believe in the corporate worship, this can happen too. But I think that the normal expression of this passage, again, is for a fellowship of people that are devoted to meeting together on a regular basis. As I thought about the passage this week, I mean, I, I was pretty happy with last week's sermon. I really was happy with, like, the application and, like, like defining what things meant. But as I thought about this passage in, in light of Acts 2.42, I just don't believe that any of this passage makes a whole lot of sense as far as what you can actually do from it on an, on an everyday basis, unless you are spending time with Jesus by being devoted to other believers on a regular basis every day, every week. I just don't think it makes sense. You might wait on a Sunday morning for an opportunity to, to do something in this text, help someone, pray for someone. But that, that, that day might not come for months. You might just be going Sunday after Sunday and not get to practice this text. But guess what? I think almost everything in this passage makes sense in a week-to-week -week fellowship of tight-knit believers. It's not meant to be an abstract truth or to-do list or a religious set of rules to pile on people. It's meant to be lived out in a regular, devoted community. Going back to Acts 2, being devoted to meeting every day in the temple courts publicly and devoted to breaking bread in their homes and being together and praising God. That's the context of this entire passage. Unless we get into the kind of community the Bible is talking about, we're not going to have an opportunity to really experience Jesus Christ and all that he has for us uh, in his word. The church is not, despite, despite you know, the modern world that we live in, the church is not called to be a collection of individual people. It's meant to be a community of believers who make up Christ's body. That's a totally different vision. There's a collection of people that meet in the Lions Club or at the VFW or wherever you get fellowship outside of the church. It's a collection of individuals. But we are meant to be a community. We are meant to actually form the body of Christ, the fleshy body of Christ, as we meet together and come together as the body. I think the Bible calls us to this kind of fellowship, this frequency of fellowship. If we don't get to that place, we're not going to get to experience all the Word of God has for us or all the Spirit has for us. But I will tell you, my most significant, 
I think spiritual growth moments and even fun and hilarious spontaneous moments have happened in the context of devoted, regular fellowship uh, with other people, with other believers. And there's so many experiences God wants us to have as his children, like being a part of this kind of community where we put into practice the way of Christ as we embody the church. So here's some of the, so that, that's kind of the, the whole, the whole I, if you will, it's, it's, the, it's, it's the pitch of why I think it's not a pitch. This is like my conviction. I believe we need to get into this kind of fellowship. Because so here's some of the practical concerns I have going forward for us. We could so easily go back to a no in-person church again situation during COVID. So easily. It could be next week. It could be two weeks from now. You know, March 8th, I had no idea we'd be closing church until June. You know, the next week, I had no idea that would happen. At any time, we could go to satellite, streaming, television, no more face-to-face, -face, easily. And so, at this time, it feels actually rather urgent to me, as your pastor, as someone who cares for you, cares for, even cares for myself and my own family, I feel urgently, personally, uh, to organize and open up small groups of people to join, to join up with or lead. It feels like an urgent need to me, because if people, if, if we got shut down, we could still most likely meet from house to house, watch the stream together, have communion together, break bread together. We could still be the church without any trouble. With, small, with, with talk of small groups, um, I always feel bad because I feel like I'm asking you to pile something onto your already busy life. And I, I'm someone that hates to put burdens on people. If you, if you listen to my preaching, the way I phrase things, it's not because I'm trying to be smooth or whatever. I just, I just don't like burdening people. I don't want to accidentally burden someone with something that they shouldn't be carrying. And I'm very careful with my language because I grew up in church where I felt burdened by what was preached and it was not liberating. It wasn't life-giving, at least at that time for me. It just felt like a hole so deep I couldn't climb out of it, let alone have a relationship with God. So the last thing I want to do is to guilt anyone or make anyone feel bad because small groups feel like just piling something onto your already full life. But the fact is, this one thing of committing to a devoted, regular fellowship with a group of believers from the body of Christ is so important. It's so important that if you were to tell me, I can form a group that will meet in my living room, I promise you, we'll report back to you, we'll let you know, I can't make it Sunday morning, but I can meet with my small group and watch the broadcast and the fellowship together. I would rather have you do that. Because the fact is, you know, people come and go, churches change and they morph, but those people that you build a family with, that's, that's your church family, you know? And I, I'd like to be the kind of church where, I mean, I've been through now, and I'm not thinking of transitioning, just so you know, so people freak out when I say this stuff. I've been through like three pastoral transitions in my life, I think, or at least two, and um, I've seen groups of people just leave because they love the previous pastor, you know? Um, I know that probably the reality is that if I left, there would be people that might leave. This is human nature. It's how things work. But I want it to be true that in new life, the pastor can come and go, but if someone from your small group that was significant in your life left, you'd be heartbroken and not be able to go on. I want it to be that kind of fellowship. Small groups. 
I don't think this is just one more burden to throw on your already full life. I think this is worth worth clearing out space for. Because in this tight-knit community, you experience the body of Christ. You experience the presence of Jesus and you, as you seek after him together. Small groups can, as I said, they can listen to services together. They can take communion together. We did that during COVID, during the, when we were separated. We took communion in our homes. You can, perhaps even more, even more fun, you can have all these spontaneous moments of joy and, and, and pleasure as you meet with people and funny things happen that you can't plan for in a curriculum, just doing life together. One of my very favorite moments probably of all time was in our small group last year, and we, uh, we were meeting on St. Patrick's Day, and then we just, yeah, get <laughs> some laughter over there, and we, uh, we said, hey, Stewart's gives us 50 cent cones on St. Patrick's Day, but none of us is wearing green, and so we went to the children's classroom, sorry, Jen, and we took the green paint, and we, paint, we face painted green on our faces, and our kids' faces, and we all went and got ice cream for 50 cents. That's something that you can't manufacture. That's a family experience that, I, that is such a warm memory. Again, that's not like studying the Bible, praying, and hearing a prophetic word, but it is valuable. Spontaneous um, moments that make up our lives, that relationship that we have. But you can take communion, you can, you can see, you can have these spontaneous moments. You can read the scriptures together, pray together, you can worship together, even to a CD if no one can lead worship. You can encourage each other in real time as you go through life, you know? Thinking about the kind of losses that face, if you think about the kind of losses that face you or have or you've gone through in your life, thinking of going through those things without a group of people that are spiritually there for you is, 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 is a sad thing. It's a, it's, a, it's a bad thing. You encourage each other in real time, comfort each other. In a small group, you can speak words of prophecy over one another and for one another. And you can equip your children, to do the ministry along with the adults. Because again, zero risk environment. They can lead worship. They can share a word. They can teach. They can help provide hospitality. And it's absolutely true, that old corny saying, you know, faith is caught, not taught to kids. It's absolutely true. Your kids will catch faith. They will not be taught faith. They will catch it by doing it. They will catch it by seeing you do it. Uh, on, my, on our vacation, I was, I was uh, beginning a new Bible study for myself through a new Bible, and I was up early reading in Genesis. Olivia came down, and she kind of shocked me. She was, scared me, to be honest. She's creepy. She creeps around. She's, she, she made me jump. And she's like, Daddy, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm, read, I'm reading the Bible, reading Genesis. She goes, oh, are you getting ready for a sermon? I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm meeting with the Lord. This is awesome. Like, I was glad at that moment I was not preparing a sermon because I know how valuable it is for a kid to see their parent doing something that doesn't have a bottom line in their, in, in their work or in some other way you might manipulate your life just to know God. I'm glad for that. Plenty of other great examples of me failing miserably as a parent, but that was one time when I said, you know, that's, it's caught, not taught. And in a small group, for very small children, yes, you might need to put them in front of a movie. You might need to Lock them in a room with, uh, with uh, Cheerios in a bowl or something, right? In the gerbil water feeder thing. I, I don't know what kids what you do, but I'm not advocating child abuse. But I'm just saying, you might have to corral little children. But when a kid gets to be five, six, seven, eight, nine, they start to be able to be fully functioning in the body of Christ. You minister to, to be prophesied to, to, to minister and prophesy themselves and worship. Kids and youth can practice 
their faith without the fear of falling on their face in a public forum. Among family, kids can do that. We love the idea of kids being a part of our ministry and new life. We talk about it all the time. But it's really, it's not, talk is cheap, you know. How do you make it happen? You set up a situation for them to catch it. You provide opportunities, and we have to do that better. I've been really burdened by the fact that we, we, we cannot do church-wide outreaches in this fall, like the Great Fall Giveaway or Love Saratoga. It was always nice to think that someone might see a sign and, and come in and get some clothing and then be prayed for and maybe come to Christ. You know, we're fulfilling the Great Commission. We're sharing the love of Christ with people in our community. And I think those events are, are, are wonderful. I look forward to a day when we can do things like that again. But I think it's much more effective to consider reaching our neighbors from the, from the pocket, from the central location of a small group. I think it makes more sense. It makes more sense to establish a, group of, a small group of Christians, be devoted to one another, like in the book of Acts, and then once you're established, to you invite other Christians in your neighborhood, just people in your neighborhood, to know about needs in your neighborhood, to meet needs in your neighborhood, you know, right where you live, bring others around to do the same thing. And I think that um, if I had to weigh what was more effective in my experience here at New Life, I think that uh, the benevolence ministry where we share our finances with people in need in our community has led to more salvation and people coming to Christ than our large-scale outreaches, it feels like to me. So I think that there's a personal level of Again, these things don't cost more. It's not more expensive. I think that small groups are where it's at. And it's where we, that's, this is the trying to do church without small groups. It's kind of like trying to drive to Walmart without a car. You're walking. You'll still get to Walmart. You know, <laughs> you'll get there eventually. So, yeah, I think neighborhood fellowships of the church, gathering people, who are close to you. We're going to be starting a small group of people that are close to us in our neighborhood that go to this church and inviting other people in. Maybe we'll reach people for Christ. In my old neighborhood in East Avenue, we had a small group, and we, we did a uh, food drive for the Franklin Community Center. As a small group, we wanted to serve the community, so we thought this is a way to kind of reach people in our neighborhood and also to uh, let them know we're here. And so we went from house to house and said, hey, we're from a small group from New Life Fellowship. We meet over there. And I think I've seen you rake your lawn. You know, we're gathering some stuff at the Franklin Community Center. And uh, sometimes people just were like not interested to slam the door. But sometimes people, there would be a conversation. And we had some valuable contacts through ministering in our neighborhood. Just, you know, something as small as that, that touch. So getting with people that are close to you, uh, inviting, inviting neighbors in that you wouldn't think to invite into this fellowship. I mean, you can bless people, help people who go through, go through things. You don't just have to hear about someone going through a loss. You can experience that, then bring it to your group and figure out how to minister in those nuts and bolts ways. Again, putting, like James says, putting the word into practice, not reading it and then forgetting immediately, not reading someone's hunger and grief and then, Staying be warm and well-fed. You know, you can really do something in a small group. We cannot, in this time together on Sunday mornings, do all the things that the church is called to do. If you look at that, this is what got me started on this rabbit trail. First Thessalonians 5, we cannot do the stuff in that passage. On Sunday mornings, by and large, it has to be done in a close-knit community of devoted friends in a small group. It just has to be done that way. Our church in, in the early, in the 90s, it was... It was founded as a small group church, and they, and they 
they talked about the idea that we have cells. That's what they call the small groups. And we had celebrations. Sunday morning was a celebration of all God had done, a time to share testimonies of what had happened in the small groups during the week, a time to just celebrate and praise and sing. There wasn't all this pressure to get everything done on Sunday morning, right? Because it was happening in the small groups. I think that's a good vision. I think the small group with Sundays is a celebration, putting the emphasis on growing in that tight-knit community and serving and reaching out is a good direction. I read an interesting, an interesting picture that I, that I wanted to share with you. Someone, someone, was saying, someone was saying you can either in, in an organization in a church like this, organization of people is what it is. We're organized. We're here, right? So in a way, we're an organization. And a church can either be a spider or it can be a starfish. A spider has all the brain matter in its head and all the information. If you chop the legs off the spider, the spider legs die, wither, and die. And that's how small groups can be in churches. They can be like legs. They don't really carry the vision of the church. They just, once they're, once they're separate from the building and the organization of the church, they die. The interesting thing about starfish is if you cut off one of the starfish's legs, as long as there's a little bit of the disc that makes up the center of the starfish, there is enough information in that to, to create a new starfish. So to be, a, to be a starfish church rather than being a spider church is kind of the goal. There are... Our vision of church from Acts 2, 42, and, and the things we see in 1 Thessalonians 5 would be, would be internal to every group in the church, and that we would be able to exist and be together and be unified in, in small group and celebration, carrying that vision together in our collective DNA as a church. So I think this is, this is important. It's amazing to me you can read an entire passage of scripture like 1 Thessalonians 5, and just feel like there's something missing. And then realize the thing that's missing is the thing that's not said. And the thing that's not said is the thing that's assumed. And the thing that's assumed is spelled out in Acts 2.42, that they were meeting together daily in their homes and meeting publicly as well. And in that context of breaking bread, of planned and spontaneous activity, of, of praying and studying and worshiping and seeking the Lord, that that group got good reputation with their community and God added to their number daily those who are being saved. I don't think we can have the, the, the end result without the beginning investment. This is a bigger sermon than just a, a round of small groups, of course. We, we are trying to start small groups in the church, but this is more of a big picture vision thing. We don't really, we're, we're working on putting groups together. I think we're going to have somewhere between five and seven so far um, of people that have gotten back to me. We're going to have groups available. But I really encourage you, you know, this is not the kind of sermon where I'm going to spell it out and say, this is what you do. I just I want you to go home with this and really consider what is God calling you to do? Is God calling you to build up a community of people who experience this life in a devoted way together as a family and, uh, and does the work of the church uh, in the church and manifests the presence of Christ in a unique way. You know, how's that going to look for you? And there will be opportunities to sign up for groups coming. But I think the vision is even deeper than that. And I think that the vision is um, going forward. It's, it's, an, it's not just a, this is not a program of the church. This is not a program of the church. This is not a spider leg. This is the DNA of the church. This is where um, the stuff 
is going to happen. It's not a program. It's, it's actually like a very important part. If it's not there, then we can't really follow what the Bible says, in my opinion. So I will end with 1 Thessalonians 5, the benediction that's shared from 523, closing out our study in 1 Thessalonians. It says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless for the coming at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Read all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Jesus, we pray that you would teach us how to be devoted, become a people who are devoted to, to you, devoted to your body, the church, devoted to one another. And in this, we would see your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And bless your people, Father, with a blessing that you would help them to hear your voice through the noise and know what it is you're calling them to. And for each one, my desire is that they would experience everything, all the treasures that are found in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dispersed to go and be the church. God bless.